Um, if we do get any updates during the service on Mary Lee's condition and you feel like it's helpful, feel free to interrupt and I will uh, break. Okay. Well, as I hinted to in, in my prayer, uh, it's obvious that the holiday season is in full swing. And, and for some folks, actually for a lot of folks, the holiday season can be very difficult because there's so many expectations that get placed on you in the holidays. It's supposed to be a time where there's lots of joy and, and happiness and peace. And so you feel like you have to maintain that sort of uh, appearance that you, in fact, are joyful and peaceful and full of love in the spirit of the holidays. Uh, but at the same time, the holidays come with a lot of expectations as you interact with family members. Uh, sometimes you don't have the best interactions with them or, or you feel the expectations that we have to uh, get the right presents and that brings with itself a burden of uh, financial pressures and, and you start to get worried and anxious. Um, or you can have uh, just concerns that as you bring people to your house, you need to have the, the right decorations or your celebration needs to be perfect and full of joy and peace and love. Uh, and you don't want people to, feel, to, to know that you're weak, uh, that you can't actually uh, maintain that holiday spirit. So you slap on a smile and you, you try to fake your way through it until you get to January when everyone is collectively depressed. Uh, now that is kind of how the holidays work for people, but it's an interesting uh, microcosm or an interesting example of what the Christian life can be like for folks. Uh, not just during the holidays, certainly during the holidays, uh, but for some people you feel that way all the time as a Christian. Like there's these expectations, these burdens that get placed on you like, well you're a Christian now, you should be joyful, you should be happy, you should be uh, at peace, uh, you should never screw up, at least not publicly. And you feel these expectations on yourself and you know, you know that you're not like that. Uh, you know that you can't live up to those expectations. You know that you're weak and yet you don't want people to know that. And so you feel that tension, that, that, that difficulty. Uh, but thankfully, uh, in the Bible, in our passage today, in Mark 14, we've got some help for that situation. It's weak, uh, but Jesus' disciples were weak too. And Jesus never said that you have to keep it all together. In fact, there's an expectation, a very clear expectation, that we will fail, that we will have trouble, and that like his own disciples, that we will be weak. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Mark chapter 14. If you're using the red ones in front of you, I think it's page 686, somewhere around there. We're finishing up the, uh, the, the life of Jesus. We're studying Mark, uh, and we are in the last day, the last 24-hour period before he is crucified and rises from the dead. Uh, last week, we looked at the scene just before this in Mark 14 where they were in the garden, and it was a, it was a terrible struggle. Jesus had a crisis where he could see clearly what was coming down the road for him. It was, it was in his face. Not just that he was going to die and suffer as bad as that was, but that he was going to bear the sins of the whole world. That the wrath of God was going to be poured out on him. He's going to be separated from the Father as he takes the penalty for all the things that he's never done, but that you and I deserve. Okay? So he saw that coming and he honestly cried out to God, uh, Father, I don't want to do this. If there's any other way, will you take this from me? But, and there's the key part, he said, but, not my will, yours be done. And so in that crisis of faith, he turned to God uh, in, in humility, in submission, in honesty, and he prayed to God for strength, and God gave it to him. And so what we'll see now for the rest of Mark 
is Jesus with his face set towards the cross, and nothing is going to change his path. He is convinced that he is going to do it. He has put his faith in God, and he's got the strength to make it all the way to the cross. So we'll see as we look at Jesus in this passage today that he remains strong. But in contrast to him, and as an encouragement for us, we see that his disciples are weak. So let's go ahead and look in Mark 14, starting in verse 43. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. So when they came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And as he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire, now the, high, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Son of my hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Jesus, in this passage, and always, was strong. Jesus was strong. Um, I'm not going to go through each verse again, line by line, but I want you to, to get an overview here of, of how Jesus acted in these scenes. He was strong. I want you to see how in control, how absolutely in control of the situation he is. Uh, in the first scene, he is in the garden. Judas is coming towards him, and he's coming with a crowd. It's a crowd probably of hundreds of people, 
based on some of the words used in other Gospels, probably at least a couple hundred people in this crowd. And they're coming with swords and clubs. This is nighttime. They're coming to Jesus. It's a very scary situation. Large crowd coming at you with swords and clubs. It would be understandable if you would be scared and run away. Uh, but Jesus stands there. Judas comes up with a kiss. They betrays him. And then the guards seize him. They take him by force. Now, again, it would be understandable if Jesus in this situation were scared, but he doesn't betray any hint of fear at this point. In fact, he, he kind of talks back to the people who are arresting him and turns the tables on them and points out how afraid they really are of him. Where he says in verse uh, 49, Look, day after day I was with you in the temple. You could have done this at any time. You could have come and seized me in front of all the people and taken me away. It wouldn't have been a big deal. But no, you guys are so afraid of me that you have to come at nighttime with your big crowd and swords and clubs when there's no one else around and to take me in. And he goes with them, not because they're bigger than him or stronger than him or he's afraid of their swords and clubs, but because, as he says in verse 49, the scriptures must be fulfilled. See, Jesus could have called down angels. He could have spoken a word. This is the guy who calmed a storm by telling the storm to be quiet. He raised the dead. He's cast out demons. He could have stopped them if he wanted to. But he said, no, the scriptures have to be fulfilled. Scriptures like Isaiah 53, which we've talked about before, Psalm 22, or even the one he just quoted from uh, Zechariah 13, uh, let the, the, the shepherd will be stricken and the sheep will be scattered, or I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You know, he, he's convinced these, these scriptures need to be fulfilled. The plan of God needs to happen. He's not overpowered. He's not out of control. He's not afraid. He knows this is what has to happen, so he submits himself to this plan. Uh, the next scene with Jesus moves to the, the gathering of the Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish ruling council. You've got the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And they're all there, and they're trying to convict Jesus. Now, we, um, we know that they've decided the outcome already. Uh, in verse 55, it says that they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. So they know the sentence. They just need to find a crime that they can pin on him so that they give that sentence. And these guys are so inept. I mean, I, I hope the lawyers in our audience can appreciate how bad these folks are because they've got lying witnesses. Like, they've got these guys lined up. They've already uh, rigged the trial, and they've picked guys. They don't, they don't even need a real crime. They just need these two witnesses to agree and to lie about the same thing. And they can't even do that. Okay, that's what he's, what he's talking about in verse, uh, 57, or verse 56, where people are standing up with false testimony. The testimony does not agree. And, and this is what you needed. To convict someone, you needed at least two witnesses who would say the same thing about a person. And they're, they're making it up and they can't even convict. So this trial is going so badly for the chief priest that all Jesus has to do, if he wants to get off, is just stay silent. They are messing it up. He's not doing anything. He just has to sit there. And he does that for a while. Uh, in verse 60, the high priest is kind of like, well, I've had enough of this. Uh, and he goes and he asks Jesus directly, don't you have an answer to make? Come on, give me some rope so I can hang you. And Jesus just sits there in verse 61 and remains silent. But then the chief priest comes back at him and he says, Tell me, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? So he's, he's saying, are you the Son of God? That's another word they would use out of respect for God. So he's saying, are you the Christ, the Son of God? 
Now, Jesus does not have to answer this. Again, if he wants to get off from here, he can. He just needs to stay silent. But he chooses at this moment to tell them the answer. He says, I am. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He says, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. I am the one who will be enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. And I'm the one who will be coming back on the clouds to judge the world. Saying, yeah, yeah, that's who I am. He, tells, he spells it out for him. He gives them everything they need to convict him. Because again, he's not trying to get off. He's in complete control. He wants to head to the cross. And this is how he gets there. So the high priest and the, and the rest of the Sanhedrin, they convict him of blasphemy. Uh, because this is blasphemy, if it's not true, and they don't even consider the option that he might be telling the truth. So they convict him of blasphemy, and then the mocking and the beating begins. And through it all, Jesus is strong. So we see that he's strong. That, that's an encouragement for us. Okay, that's a big encouragement for us, that we have a Savior who is strong. That when we go through trials, when we have troubles, when we feel like the world is spinning out of control, we have a rock, Jesus, who is in complete control. And even in this moment, when it looks like he is being railroaded to an unjust death, he's got it all in hand. So we can trust a Savior like this. But look at those disciples. I mean, those disciples, they were weak. Right, Jesus was strong, but the disciples were weak. If you go back to the time before the garden, chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus had predicted that this would happen. Uh, verse 27, he said, You will all fall away, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So there was this initial flush of courage. Jesus predicted, You're all going to fall away. And we, we pick on Peter, but they all said this. Okay? All of them said, We will not fall away. If we have to die with you, we are with you. And then the crowd comes. And there is an initial flush of courage in verse 47. One of them, uh, the other Gospels tell us it's Peter, takes a sword and cuts off the high priest's ear. So yeah, he's, he's, he's courageous, he's strong for a second. Uh, and then all we see after this is just failure after failure. They used up their resources of personal strength and all they had left was weakness. And so in verse 50, they all left him and fled. Verse 51 and 52 is really interesting. I don't know if any of you asked yourself, why is this in here? There's a, just a kind of aside, there's this young man with a linen cloth around his body and, and they seize the cloth and he runs away naked. Mark's the only one who records this in his gospel. It's not in any other gospels. And you have to ask yourself, why did he stick that in there? And I think the answer is because he's trying to show us how completely everyone abandons Jesus. Okay, you've got these disciples who previously had said, we're going to die with you, we're going to stand with you, and then when the moment comes, they're so desperate to get away that they'll leave their clothes. We'll just run away naked, anything to get away from Jesus. 
You know, it's really interesting that this word that shows up in verse 50 and 52 for, for leaving, they left him, they left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the same word that's used to talk about this call to discipleship earlier in, the, in, in Mark. When Jesus called the disciples in Mark 1.16, he says, come follow me. It says they left their nets and they followed him. We think, what wonderful examples. These disciples who left everything to follow Jesus. And in Mark chapter 10, Jesus calls the rich young ruler to sell all his possessions and to come follow him, and he can't do it. And Peter, always Peter, comes up to Jesus and he says, Oh, but Master, look, what about us? We've left everything to follow you. And now, in verse 50 and 52, we've got these same disciples who previously had left everything they had to follow Jesus, now leaving everything they've got, even the clothes on their backs, to get away from them. It's a complete failure of discipleship. And these guys are weak. Peter gives us the best example, though, or the worst, depending on how you look at it. It's a striking example. It's recorded in every gospel, and it's his denial of Christ. In Mark, it begins in verse 66. It's just going on while Jesus was being questioned. Peter's outside, and a servant girl comes up to him, just a servant girl, and she says, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And he, of course, denies her. She says, I don't even know him. I don't know what you're talking about. He goes away to another place, tries to get away from her so she doesn't ask him again. But she follows him, and she kind of draws some more people in to the conversation. She says, isn't this guy, isn't he one of the ones that was with Jesus? I'm pretty sure. And he gets more upset, and he denies again. And then finally, the crowd gets in on it, and all the bystanders start to say, no, I'm sure you have to be him, because you talk like a Galilean, and you are one of them. And Peter begins to swear and to curse, not like we think of it. He's not saying dirty words or anything like that. He's swearing and cursing. He's, he's swearing, I swear to God, you know, may God curse me if I am lying. I do not know this man of whom you speak. Okay, that is serious. This is a big big failure. And then he hears the rooster and he remembers a few hours ago Jesus had said, you're going to do this. And he said, no, I'll never. And he breaks down and he weeps. Now why does he weep? It's because he's shown himself in this moment to be the anti-disciple. To be the exact opposite of what Jesus is expecting of disciples. Do you remember Mark 8, 34? It's a key verse in Mark. Jesus says, this is what it means to follow me. If anyone would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And here with Peter and the disciples, we've got them not denying themselves, but denying Jesus. Not taking up the cross, but doing everything they can to avoid the suffering that Jesus is headed towards. And not following Jesus, but leaving everything behind that they can to get as far away from him as possible. And so, yeah, Peter is upset. Yeah, he's crying because he realizes that he's weak. Like I said before, this should be an incredible encouragement for us. It should be a really big encouragement for us. Because we're weak too. Okay, we're weak too. Um, it's fairly common, I think, in Christianity to latch on to verses like Mark 8, 34 
uh, at least for some folks, it's, it's common, to latch on to verses like this and to think, well, Christianity is hard. I mean, Jesus is saying you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Uh, so, I mean, what does that look like? Am, am I doing that enough? If I deny myself enough, or am I, am I indulging? Have, have I really taken up my cross? Am I really following Jesus? I mean, what about those things in my life where I'm still struggling? You know, what about my struggle with anger or uh, with greed or lust or, um, or pride? You know, I've still got this stuff, and I'm not really denying myself enough. So am I really following Jesus? You can start to wonder, you know, in the times of weakness, maybe I'm not a true follower at all. Okay? And in those moments, I want you to look at Peter and thank God for Peter because he tells us we shouldn't be surprised when we're weak. Now I want to spend the rest of the sermon helping us to know how we should respond then in that moment. Okay? So hopefully you're all there with me. You all realize, yeah, we are weak. Yeah, we, we, we do have that experience. So what do we do with it? How do we respond? How do we deal with our weakness as disciples? And from our passage today, I want to give us three steps, three ways we respond to this weakness. And the first one is to be honest. Be honest. Uh, It's really remarkable. I told you that this story is in all four Gospels. Uh, It's really remarkable that this story made it in any Gospel at all. You, You look at who was there with Peter, and he's by himself at least as far as named disciples go. There's nobody else there. There's nobody ratting Peter out. The reason we know about this story is that Peter told somebody. He told people that he denied Christ, that he swore he did not know him. And even if Peter himself wasn't the one who told everybody this, maybe there was someone else there who who spread that story, Peter became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. You just read through Acts, you see how important he is. Okay? Uh, he could have had the authority to tamp down the story, to squelch it out. Uh, and even, I mean, you know the tendencies that we have. If, if you really admire a leader and you like them, you're not going to go around telling about all their weaknesses. And Peter was greatly admired. He's a great leader. The only way that this story would have gotten so prominently featured in each of the Gospels is if Peter himself told people about it and authorized the telling of it. He wanted us to know that he had this incredible failure. He himself was honest. And that's a really important lesson that we need to learn. I mean, I I know that all of you people have heard about uh, the Penn State scandal, and I'm going to spare you all the gory details of that. But I just want to draw this lesson, that at the heart of that scandal at Penn State, and if you don't know about it, you can read about it uh, later, but at the heart of that scandal is that there was a series of alleged crimes that went on, and no one was willing to tell anyone about it because they were afraid about what it would do to the image of the school, and specifically the football program. Okay? There were people who were so concerned about appearances that they weren't willing to be honest about the alleged evil that was going on. And I thought, we can't afford to be honest. If we do that, our image will be destroyed, our reputation will be taken down. But Peter, if he were standing here right now, would tell you, you can't afford not to be honest. Because like's happened at Penn State, eventually the truth comes out. And if you let it fester inside and you don't deal with it, it becomes worse and worse. See, Peter says you need to be honest. When you encounter your weakness, you have to let people know. Now, I want to kind of belabor this because, well, first of all, this is really hard to do. 
So it's going to be easier for you to hear this and then say, no, I can't do that. Okay. Uh, but secondly, because it's so important in a church and for Christians, because the natural tendency for Christians and for churches over time is to drift toward hypocrisy. Because we, over time we learn more and more the standards that we ought to be living up to, and we learn more and more how bad we are at living up to those standards. And so our tendency is to say, well, I need to keep up appearances. I need to be, uh, at least be seen as someone who is a good Christian. We need to be seen as a church where we have it all together. Okay, that's our tendency. So we need to get this lesson from Peter that we need to be honest. I mean, we, as you mature as a Christian, see, this is hard when you're, when you're a baby Christian because all your sins are just out there. Like, people know that you're a messed up person. Right? But then you get better over time, and you get rid of those, uh, those really uh, obvious sins, and you get good at you know, controlling it. You get good at um, you know, couching gossip as a prayer request. Um, or you, know, you get good at um, maintaining your anger while you're in front of people, but then letting it show at home. Right? You, you get good at, at hiding it because you don't want people to know that you're not as good as you think they think you should be. Do you get that? You follow that? Get the tape, replay it back. It'll, it'll make sense. Um, so so we, we tend towards hypocrisy. And so we need this message, this important message, that we need to be honest. Now, I'm not saying that each week we need to have everybody come up front and stand at this microphone and say, here's what I did wrong this week. Um, you know, sometimes if there's a public sin, that is the appropriate response. Uh, but what I am urging us all to do is to, to have somebody some person in your life with whom you can be really honest, somebody you can be real with, someone that you can, in fact, confess your sins one to another. Someone that you, you can just say, this is what I did this week, and, and I, I can't keep it in anymore, and i got to let you know because this is, and this is my sin. I can't, I can't let it fester. I can't pretend. I don't want to be a hypocrite. Okay? I, I want you to have somebody or a couple people that you can have that with. Now, if you're sitting there right now and you're thinking, I don't know even where to begin, how do I find a person like that? Uh, I'll give you a couple suggestions. Okay, one, you can let me be your matchmaker. Okay, I'll, I'll, you can come to me and you can say, I need a person like this, I don't have anybody, and I will work really hard to try to match you up with somebody with whom I know, I know they're a reliable person, they're a trustworthy person, they're not going to judge you, they're not going to condemn you, they're not going to gossip all your stuff to everybody else. And I'll try to help you to find those relationships. So that's one option. Uh, another option, you can come to our Wednesday night Bible studies. Uh, now we're having, you know, that, that study, it's a, it's a group of great people that are mature and care for one another. And we're doing more and more times there where we're sharing requests, prayer requests, and, and just applications, things that we're learning from the Bible, and, and confessing our sins in that way to one another and lifting each other up. So that's a place where you can come and you can try to develop those relationships. Uh, you can also just take some initiative and start inviting people to your house. Uh, you know, we, we get, sometimes it's hard for us, we're like, how can I get to that deep relationship where I can share my life with someone else? Well, the deep relationship starts with the shallow relationship. Okay, don't just sit at your home never having lunch with anybody in the church or never doing anything outside the church with someone and then complain that no, there's nobody I can share my life with. Well, have you shared a meal with anybody? Like, do you know anyone at all? You'll never get to know someone to the extent where you can share your life with them if you don't start to get to know them a little bit. Okay, so you can do that. So newer people in the church, 
you have my permission to ask the older people of the church uh, to a meal. Okay, you want my permission. You can do that. You don't have to wait for them. Older people in the church, uh, don't be content with all the relationships you have. You've got a lot of relationships. You're fine. Okay, but part of the service that you provide for the church and the body is that you open yourselves up to make new relationships with people who aren't already in your circles. Okay? I told you I was going to belabor this, but this is important. We want to be a church where we're honest. And one of the benefits, one of the great benefits of a small church is that you can know each other. You can really know each other. You can know your junk. You can know the sins. You can know the weaknesses. And you can love each other anyway. So I I want that to be true of us. Be honest. More quickly now, the other two. You're honest about your sin, then you repent of your sin. This is important. You can't leave this one off. Because there's a, there's, there's a whole class of people, a whole just kind of personality type of people, that have no trouble being honest about their sin. And they just say, but that's who I am. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a sinner, and I'm just human, and that's just how it is, right? This is, my, this is my sin, this is what I'm like. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? Peter was honest about his sin, but he was also honest about his repentance. I mean, what happened right after he realized what he'd done? He wept. He wept. Because he felt the pain of what he had done. He wasn't flipping about it. You know, I've got a real struggle with denying Christ. You know, I just, I got to you know, I, I, yeah, I denied him three times again last night. I did it again. Ah, bummer. But, you know, I'm only human, right? I mean, I'm only human. I'm going to deny Christ. That's going to happen. It's like, no. He, he did it, and he realized how serious it was, and he wept because he knew that this sin was what was sending Christ to the cross. So we we see our sin, we're honest about it, and then we repent. We weep over it. We feel the weight of it. We say, I don't want to do that again. But we don't despair. uh, Because that's not the end of the story. So the third thing that we do, we're, we're honest about our sin, we repent of our sin, and then we receive the grace of Jesus. You see, there's two disciples in this story that we read today that have... Uh, that are named, that are, that are explicitly named. They're, one of them is Judas, and one of them is Peter. Now, both of these guys don't come off looking very well in this story. Uh, both of these guys deny or betray Jesus. Um, it's, it's a horrible thing that they did. Uh, but Judas, we never see him again in Mark. He doesn't show up again. If you were reading Matthew, you would see that Judas did, in a, in a sense, repent of his sin. He took his money back to the, the priest, and he said, I've, I've done a horrible thing. I've betrayed an innocent man. But then he goes and he, he kills himself because he doesn't think there's any grace for him. Peter, Peter denies Jesus quite strongly. He repents of his sin. And then later in the story, we see that he receives grace. Um, so back in chapter 14, verse 28 when Jesus predicted this denial, he said, After I'm raised, I'll go before you to Galilee. Then in chapter 16, verse 7, after Jesus has risen from the dead and an angel comes to deliver a message to the women who found him, in Mark 16:7, the angel says, Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, why didn't he just say, Go tell his disciples? Why do you say, go tell his disciples and Peter? Well, probably because Peter would think, well, he surely doesn't mean me. 
I mean, he probably met his real disciples who didn't stand there and swear that they didn't know him. Right? Isn't that how we work? We, we sin and we think, wow, if we admit to ourselves, if we're honest, and then we, we repent of our sin, we realize how bad it is, uh, isn't the next step for us to think, well, that's so bad that, in fact, Jesus can't possibly mean that he'll forgive me. You know, that his grace can't possibly be big enough to forgive the denial that I've just perpetrated. But Jesus says through this angel specifically, tell his disciples and Peter that I'm going before you to Galilee. My grace is big enough for Peter. I want him there. I've got a place for him. I've got a plan. See, this is the wonder of the gospel, and this is why it's so, so great, because it's for weak people. The gospel is for weak people. Right? It's, it's for Peter. It's for you, and it's for me. The promise of grace from Jesus is for weak people. All this stuff that we're looking at this month, where Jesus is headed to the cross and dying, it's for you and for me. Right? He is the one who's doing everything right. He's the one who's strong and bearing our sins because we're weak. Because we can't do it. Right? We never earned forgiveness in the first place. We can never get anything past him. He knows our hearts, no matter how good we are at being hypocrites. The grace of Jesus is for people who are weak like you and me. We've never earned it, and we can never lose it through our efforts. Jesus is the one who is strong enough for all of us. So, as you take that truth and you re-enter the holiday world, uh, what are you going to do when you sin? When you experience your weakness? What are you going to do this week uh, when you get angry at your children irrationally? What are you going to do this week when you say horrible things to your spouse or think horrible things about your boss or, or when you lie or when you envy? Does that ever happen for anybody at Christmas time? Uh, when you envy or when you lust or when you get worried or when you gossip uh, or when, when, when you have an opportunity to stand up for Jesus and you don't do it. Like, what are you going to do with that this Christmas? Are you going to pretend like it's, it didn't happen? Are you going to fail to believe in grace? Or are you going to be honest about your sin? You know, I, I hope that's what you do. I hope that, that when you encounter that, because you're going to sin this week, when you encounter that, I hope that you're honest about it, that you, first of all, could admit it to yourself, that, yeah, you sinned, you could admit it to God, and that you've got someone you can share that with, that you repent of that, that you grieve over your sin, you mourn over it, and you really feel the weight of what you've done, but then, most importantly, that you receive the grace of Jesus. That you see that your sin, as bad as you feel about it, it's so much worse than you can even imagine. And yet the grace of Jesus is so much greater than you can dream. That his grace is big enough to cover all the sins that we have done and have yet to do this Christmas season. See, the gift that Jesus gave us, the gift we celebrate on Christmas, it didn't come because we were so wonderful that God just wanted to give us a present. The gift that we get at Christmas is because we are so horrible that Jesus needed to die to save us. We needed a Savior, and Jesus did that for us. Let's praise God and rejoice as we accept his grace this Christmas, acknowledging our sin, repenting, and believing the gospel. Let's pray.
Father, it is good to believe the gospel. Lord, would you make us aware, yes, even painfully aware of our sin, that in understanding the depths of depravity in our own hearts, we might more totally and fully appreciate the gift that you have given us in the cross. Oh, Father, make us a church where we believe the gospel, where we believe it enough to be honest with one another and to forgive one another and to not gossip and judge one another when we share our sin, but to know that, that, the, foot is, uh, that the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? that we are all sinners, but that you have loved us and have called us to holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.